what about I lived this many moments? I experienced a beautiful sunrise. It didn't make a photograph, but boy, did I enjoy it. I felt the grass rubbing on my legs and it made my trousers wet. They're the moments that life is made of. They're the things at the end of your life when your life flashes before you. This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today we're talking with Paul Sanders. Paul's over in the south of the UK, south of England, beautiful area, and has one of the most remarkable photo careers that any of us could hope for. He was the photo editor at The Times, and now he is into something called mindful photography, landscape photography, black and white, a minimalist approach, but with a really, really intriguing and, to my mind, uh, to use a technical term here, a really cool approach to engaging with photography and engaging with the landscape. Paul, how are you doing today? How's everything over in England? Hey, Scott. Um, I'm good, thank you. Really nice sort of spring spring afternoon here, so uh, thank you very much for, for having me. It's a pleasure to talk oh, to you. It, it, it is my pleasure. This is really, really remarkable work. Your work, Paul, it, I mean, it is landscape work. It, it, it is yeah. a very quiet work. It, it, it's a very contemplative work, but that's not what a great deal of your career was about. You know, you, as I said in a minute ago, you were the photo editor for The Times. Tell me how you get from being the seven-year-old with the Instamatic to the photo editor of The Times and then completely turning in a different direction. Uh, okay, so you go from being the kid who likes taking pictures because you think it's cool to the photo <laughs> editor of The Times with, with a lot of hard work. Um, being very lucky. The key to it, I think, is understanding why I was photographing things. I mean, my, my very mm -hmm. first job in photography, aside from printing in, you know, sort of dark rooms and helping photographers do that, do that kind of thing, was actually as a, a glamour photographer in Spain. So when I was 18, I was shooting glamour calendars in the 80s um, in Spain <laughs> with another photographer. Now, that's what the sort of the young kid photographer wanted to be. He wanted the cool, the cool photography job with the girls and the life and the fast car. I think basically I was having a really early midlife crisis. <laughs> oh, it, it, it sounds like heaven for for a lot of reasons. But um, and and it was fantastic. But I basically spent all the money. I mean, we were paid very well, and I spent all the money that I earned having a really good time. And to be honest, I look back mm -hmm. now and I don't regret it because. Had I not done that, I wouldn't have needed when I came back to the UK to get a proper job. And okay, you know, and and that for me was not a job in a, a shop or a factory. It was a job in photography. And the first one that came up was a, a job as a trainee photographer on a local newspaper. Okay, and and I I went there, and it was quite funny. I was the only person who went for the interview with a with an RB sixty seven medium format film camera. <laughs> Um, and, I, and the editor took one look at me. He said, "What are you doing with that?" I said, "It's the only camera I've got." <laughs> oh. And I, and I did my my assessment for him, 
in 10 frames over uh, over a couple of rolls of um <laughs> 120 roll film <laughs> oh my did, did you get the job yeah i got the job and the <laughs> thing was, I, I didn't know that i really wanted it i was i think i was a little bit arrogant at the time because i'd been shooting all this stuff and they wanted a trainee photographer when he was asking me photography questions i i knew it, i knew all the answers and i was like oh, i don't really think i want to work here but then they offered me the job and I thought, well, actually I need the money, so I'll do it. And they, they gave me um, a battered FM2. I mean, it, it obviously been dropped out of a car or an aeroplane or something. Oh, I had a 28 mil lens that was stuck on F8 and didn't focus properly. And um, a, a Nikon 180-28, which was a beautiful, beautiful lens. And I learned the craft of news photography through working with really bad gear, but having a really good time because it was it was all about relationships it was just about people and the local i don't know what the newspapers are like in the in the states the local ones but in the uk they're very much community based so there's lots of pictures of lots of faces and the editor's view at the time was faces sell papers the more people mm-hmm. we get in the paper the more papers we will sell the more prints we will sell the more money we will make it's good but I just wanted to take nice pictures because I was very inspired by the independent newspaper in England, which at that time was beautiful black and white pictures that that told the story in an alternative way. So I would always do my faces sell papers picture and then I would photograph it from a way that I felt crafted the story in a, a nicer way. What do you mean by crafted the story in, in a nicer way? So many of us in photography talk about our images as stories, as, as storytelling. Mm. How, how, how were you conceiving of a different story? I mean, my, my average day at that newspaper was probably six or seven check presentations where they get a big check from the local bank and they write the amount on it and 20 people stand around, stand around the check mm-hmm. now. You imagine after you've done the first one, you're fairly bored with a big check. <laughs> and, and it seems yep. to be the best thing these people ever have is a big, you know, we've got a big check. And I'm like, great. How did you raise the money? Oh, we raised the money by doing a sponsored sew. Or, you know, we got in the swimming pool and we did a thousand lengths of the swimming pool. I say, well, let's, I'll do a picture of the check, but let's photograph what you did. You know, mm-hmm. let's photograph the kids doing a three-legged race or you guys swimming or making the quilt for, you know, the, the old people's home. Let, let's have a picture with that that tells the story in a different way because it's not about the – yeah, it is about the money that's raised in the end. But the, the activity that raises the money could inspire other people to do something similar rather than just say they did a sponsored sew or a sponsored swim. Everybody goes, ooh, right. you make the swimming picture interesting. So you you went you went from a really dynamic, energetic life in Spain to now this community paper, but you're you're still looking for that that edge. You're still looking for that little bit of, of dynamic excitement, adrenaline, you know, whatever you want to call it. That had to lead you then, you know, through a series of steps, obviously, um, yeah. to being one of the you know the the photo editor at the Times. Yeah. We're talking adrenal, adrenaline central there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, too much adrenaline. <laughs> well, well, the, 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 we'll, we'll get to that in a second. T- t- tell me about the upside, though. T- tell me about you know life as, as the photo editor at the Times when it, when it was all just new and romantic. But since I started in newspapers, that was the only job I wanted. And I started at Daventry in 1991, the Daventry Express, the little weekly newspaper, and I was 
working for the Times by 2002, it was sheer determination. And I, I worked for Reuters and other newspapers and agencies in between time, learning the craft. And when I got, when I was offered the job as picture editor of the Times, it was basically because I'd been working there for two years and I, I was passionate about the way they used pictures. I kept trying to convince them there were, there were other ways we could use pictures. There were other ways we could tell stories with the pictures. And then, amazingly, I was given the opportunity, because the Times used to be a broadsheet newspaper, very well respected. And then they, they made a, a huge change when they bought out a, a compact version, a tabloid version, although we weren't allowed to call it a tabloid because that was dumbing down right, <laughs> right. for the highly educated reader. And I was asked to look after pictures in the compact version. And because there, were, there was little or no advertising in it, the, the managing editor said to me, Paul, you've been going on and on about how to use pictures. You've got a clean canvas. Show us. Show us what you mean when you're talking all this kind of picture stuff. And I was like, okay. So we started putting pictures across the gutter of the newspaper, using them full half page, stripping out the important bits of the picture. So we just had a picture that ran really narrow top to bottom. You know, we did, uh, one, we did portraits where we would only publish half the face. Hmm. And it was, it was trying to get people to engage with the photography in a way that, they're just if it's just slapped on a plate in front of them it's like wallpaper they don't engage with it and photography is such a powerful communication medium that it seems such a shame to give over so much space to pictures in a newspaper for them to not say anything to not engage in, in, yeah in, in in american newspapers uh, at least the ones that i'm familiar with the page yeah. designer and the photographer may not ever talk to each other the photographer will turn in the work and the page designer based on a thousand other needs, will crop, will center, will will do whatever. So you, yeah. you're you're talking an awful lot of art direction and page design as well as yeah. what how your know, composition, as well as the basics of photography. Yeah. So the idea of being a picture editor is not to just serve pictures to people. <clears throat> you're not a you're not a a waiter in a in a fast food bar. You know, you're a creative person with experience and they hire you because you're a you're a visual person. So it stood to my mind that you had to be involved in the entire process from the briefing of the photographer to the editing of the pictures to the selection of the picture and then to the layout. It had to all be part of the, the stream. If you've been given a story and you say to the photographer, I want you to photograph it like this, then it stands to reason you've got to sell that into the newspaper to the page designer. We were very lucky that I was able to bring in some amazing people to work around. I'm one of those people that believe that if you're a leader of a team, you bring in people that are better than you to bring the team up even more. You, you don't hire people who don't have the ability that you can just pour the blame on. You bring people into the better people around you, the more they boost you. So I hired the best people I could get hold of. And we work very, very closely with the designers to the point that the designers actually trust us. If we said, we've got this coming, this is how we're shooting it, we would have these discussions before they even started the, the page layout. So they knew what to expect. It was really, really good fun because we were totally involved at every stage. 
That is so cool. I, I, that's there's a big change in your career coming up here in just a minute. But but, you know, but before we get there, is is there one one story from your days at the Times that, that you tell more often? Is there one that you know is, is you know people say what was that like, and you say oh I, let me tell you a story. Okay, so on an average day at the Times, as picture editor, you're responsible for looking at all the pictures that come in from all the agencies: AP, Reuters, Getty. AFP, EPA, the Press Association in the UK, your own photographers, all the agencies around the country. So I would look at somewhere between seventeen and 20,000 pictures a day. Oh, jeez. Right. While assigning photographers. So I used to have two screens with pictures on. I had three telephones with five lines each that never stopped ringing. And <laughs> you were expected to make decisions very, very quickly, and listen to conversations that were happening on the design desk at the side of you and behind you, as mm. well as keep an eye on the news. The day that uh, William and Kate got married, Prince William and Catherine Middleton, there were 40,000 pictures of just the two of them. And you're looking for <laughs> one picture. <laughs> um, now, you've got to add into that your 17 to 20,000 other pictures that come in, plus mm -hmm. the pictures of flag wavers and celebrities that are added onto that. I think I looked at nearly 100,000 pictures that day. Oh, and you're looking man. for about 300. And people can't get over the volume of pictures. And these days, I mean, I've been left at times 10 years. It's probably, it's probably massively more than that now because you also have to monitor social media feeds, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. They're all massive sources of pictures. And you've got to juggle whether there's authenticity in the picture. Is it real or is it Photoshop? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's a crazy, crazy job. But I have to say, on a very big story, when, when something massive happens, there is no better place to work than in a newspaper. Oh, because yeah. they're, the, they're the days that everything clicks. You've got the best people in the business working for a common cause. It's like you don't have to speak to people. Everybody knows what's expected and everybody knows what to deliver, when to deliver it. And it just gets done. On a quiet day, on a quiet news day, there's no worse place to work than a newspaper <laughs> because they're all scrabbling around trying to make something out of nothing and everybody's yelling at each other because they just don't know what's going to happen. Um, well, somebody's, you know. somebody's getting a big check, you know that. <laughs> <laughs> but... I, you know, even now, I look back on my time with the newspapers with great fondness. I've still got mm -hmm. very strong friendships from with some of the photographers that I, I worked with and that I trained up. I think that newspaper photography is really important. I think it's a bit more sanitized now. It gets more and more sanitized as people become more PR savvy. And that takes some of the excitement out of the job. But you do love it. But I can tell you, if you've got time, I can tell you one very quick, very quick story about how you get the front it. page picture selected. Go for it. Okay, so what we have to do, you imagine you're going into an afternoon conference where all the heads of department are. The picture desk at the Times always went last because they were the only ones who actually had something real to show. Everybody else had <laughs> kind of make-believe stories or, you know, we might get this, we might get that. The picture desk were the only ones who had to have a real print to put down. And we had to play what's known as picture desk poker, where you don't put the best picture on top of the pile. You put the best picture about halfway down and you don't talk about it. 
you let the editor and the deputy editor and the other heads of department think they've chosen the picture you didn't <laughs> you didn't want you know so but because if you go in i love this one they go no not that one paul so you always give them the chance to make the decision because if they're seen to make the decision that makes them feel powerful if you mm-hmm. if you make the decision for them it makes them look weak so they have to override you even though it might be the best picture in the world, they will not use it because of pride. So we always play picture desk poker and we, we lay our cards out and the one picture we want, and you do it every day, the one picture you want in the paper, you don't talk about. And they go, what about this one? You've not mentioned this one. And you go, that's all right. And they go, we'll have this one then. <laughs> it's like, okay, page one. Thank you very much. Job done. So you, <laughs> I, I love it. Um, well, it, it, w- one last question about photojournalism yeah. but before we switch over here. Looking at so many pictures, it seems to me that the problem is the majority of them are going to be competent. Maybe not excellent, but, but you know, I would imagine the percentage of, of real incompetent is relatively small. How do you define excellence when you are working at such a volume and such a speed? How do you recognize that, that special quality that says this one, all the pictures of the royal couple? I mean, they had to be pretty much the same pictures, but were, a couple yeah. of, you know, a couple of them really sing. How do you know? In truth, it's a bit like when you photograph something really special and you press the button and you instinctively know something amazing has happened. The same happens when you're looking at volumes of pictures. You know what you're looking for in many cases, because you've got the agenda, you know what spaces you've got to fill. And then you're looking for that something that just calls to you. And literally, the hairs on your arms stand up. I mean, the from the, the that royal wedding, for the sake, even though it was such a long time ago, I can still remember the moment when I saw the picture that was going on the front page, and I actually saw it happen on TV because I was watching it live. Mm-hmm. And it was when uh, Kate and William drove out of uh, the palace in a an Aston Martin. Yeah, I remember. All we'd been talking about all day long was the kiss picture for the front. Kate and William on the balcony kissing like Charles and Diana. And yeah. I saw them drive out of the palace laughing in his car, and I thought, it's not the kiss, that's the picture. There's something so different, so connected to what everybody else does on their wedding day, is they leave the wedding in a nice car, and they laugh with each other. That's a young couple in love. And... The photograph actually came in from a guy, a guy called Max Mumby, an amazing freelance photographer. And it just, it dropped onto my screen. And bearing in mind, on my screen, I used to have 100 pictures at a time. It stood out. I mean, it was like the lights went out on every other picture and it stood out for me. And I just went, oh my God, that's it. And I mean, even now I'm talking about it, I can feel the hairs on my arms just raising up. It was that kind of moment. Mm-hmm. And I took it into conference, and that was the one day I didn't play picture desk poker. And I put it down on the table, and I said, this is the best picture of the day. And the editor said, no, it can't be. They're not kissing. <laughs> oh. And I was like, oh, my God, like, I've blown it. But eventually, we, went, we did go with it, eventually, because he wanted a kiss picture on the front. Now, yeah. the interesting thing is that the next day, the only paper that had that picture on the front page was The Times. Every other paper had a kiss picture. Mm-hmm. And the sales of the Times went up by nearly 20% for a month oh based on a picture <laughs> on one day. And, oh. and that's what picture editing is. It, it's, it's, really, it's really sort of looking at something and going, that's the one. And then there are days you have to fight 
and fight and fight to get that picture in the paper. And they're the days that when you look at it the next morning and you see that it's sold out and you see all the media commentators talking about how much it stands out because it's not a kiss and it's, you know, yeah. it's bold, it's brave and all the rest. They're the days that you know you've done your job well and that you're good at what you do. That's a great transition. I mean, you, you are good at what you do. You're, you're at the top of the industry and then you decided to do something completely different. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> you, you have developed this approach. Your website is called Still. Those of you that are listening, um, the website is discoverstill.com. Discover still as one word. And the frenetic pace of photojournalism is nowhere in these pages, Paul. This is a complete change, not only to the images, but to the whole understanding of what photography is. You, I'm, I'm going to quote from your website here for everyone, where you talk about a mindful approach to photography. And then you say, I believe that photography has the power to influence our perception of the world around us, building a yeah. sense of appreciation and contentment simply by taking the time to notice what's around us and how it makes us feel. Through photography, we can discover a better way to understand ourselves, our thoughts and our feelings, and to reconnect with the world we normally rush through. Eloquent statement there on your website, but you, you've gone from rushing through to a mindful approach and a website called Still. What happened? A couple of things, really. First of all, there was getting to the top of the mountain and then asking myself the question of, is this all? Is this it? What do I, have I got to do this forever? And I'd also, have you heard the phrase, writing checks your body can't cash? I'd set unrealistic precedents of myself by working ridiculous hours. I mean, I was working sort of 14, 16 hours a day, never off the phone, even on my holidays and days off, you know, monitoring the news, phoning into the office. I was ne I never rested. And then to cap that, I used to cycle on my, my road bike to the office every day. So a round trip of like 52 miles. Um, oh, heavens. Yeah, I, I wasn't very well. And I wasn't sleeping. I suffered with insomnia. And one of the photographers that worked for me sadly took his own life while on assignment for me. Mm. And all of these things added up, plus my marriage was falling to pieces, mainly because I was never at home because I was always working. Um, and I, I just, I basically, the stuffing came out of me. I, I ran out of steam. I, I managed for two years on two to three hours sleep a night, really poor diet you know, cycling to and from work, working all the hours God sent, and then drinking at night, you know, drinking wine to try and make me sleep. And the wheels came off. I burnt out. I burnt out and I broke down big style. You know, I got to a point where I could barely get to the office because I was too frightened of what was happening. There was too much pressure on me. And I was finding it harder and harder to cope with everything that was happening. And I, I have one of these personas that I'm always smiling. And mm -hmm. I will always say yes. People say, oh, can you do it? Yes. When do you need it? Not, no, I can't. I can't fit it in. And I just, I was running on empty. And I literally got to a point where I, I fell apart. And I ended up in a, a bit of a state. I was trying to deal with the problems that I was having. But, you know, I was 
unable to, I was unable to talk to anybody because uh, in that industry, if you start talking about being depressed or having any kind of mental health problem, there's not so much now, but there, there was a sort of a stigma of he's broken, he's damaged goods. Therefore, mm-hmm. you're a short time before you, you're out. So, you know, I, I ended up sort of in a place where I just wanted to, to end it. I, you know, wanted to, I just wanted to take my own life and it'd be done. I was dreadful. I can't tell you how unhappy I was. I loved the job, but the pressure and the precedence I'd set by working longer and longer hours, I couldn't take back to help me recover. And I was just, mm-hmm. I, I was lost. And I completely lost my identity as well. I became picture editor of the Times. I, you know, I was just an entity. And I lost myself in the job completely. And so did, did you simply decide, you know, one Tuesday, I'm done? Yes. Yeah, literally. I had a little bit of time. I had some time off ill. They, they, um, they signed, my doctor signed me off. And I remember just sitting in a, in a field thinking, I don't want to do this anymore, but I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I went back into the office after my time off and I was sat in the afternoon conference and the, the editor said something along the lines of, you must have better than this, Paul. It was a very quiet day. And I said, you know what? I haven't. And I went back to my desk and I thought, right, I'm going to go and see the managing editor and tell them I want out. I've had it. I've had, that's it. I'm done. And it was literally that cut and dried. I didn't agonize over it. I just thought, right, I have no idea really what I'm going to do at this point, but I, I'm done in this. And that's it. You know, I, I went up, I, I explained to them where I was and I had to do about three months, I think it was. So I was able to leave at the end of the year, the end of 2011. Um, make a make 2012 a clean start. Oh my! I mean, you you didn't give up photography. Yeah, I mean, you, you went back to probably more shooting of your own than the, the job allowed you to do. But yeah, you also yeah. developed this really wonderful and and deep approach to photography. This whole sense of of mindfulness and and of being still. Later on in your website, you say mindful photography means stopping and allowing yourself to be still, to make contact with your present experience. So talk to me about the artistic transformation here and the the development of mindfulness as an approach to image making. Okay. So to appreciate this, you have to go back to the, the child with the camera. Since that point when I was a kid with a camera, I hadn't taken images for myself. They'd always been for other people, commissioned by other people. So when I left the Times, I wanted, I thought I'd be a landscape photographer because I thought it'd be easy, to be honest. I didn't think there was any money in it, but I thought it'd be a bit of a, a, a way of just getting by. But I didn't know what sort of photographer I was because I'd sort of been defined by everything else. So I sort of had to find my, find my way. And it took a while to bring still to fruition because I needed to find out who I was. So I, I had this sort of an epiphany really where I'd been photographing a lot of the locations that many of the famous landscape photographers in the UK go to and I went to all of them recreating pictures and I was I was trying to work out why I just felt so empty now part of it was because I was still suffering with my mental health and you know you don't get over a breakdown you know in the blink of an eye it's not like you know you you get over a cold. It takes a long time and a lot of work. And 
I was expecting to just switch into something else and feel totally fulfilled. And I hadn't given myself time to get over everything. I was up in Glencoe, ironically, and there's a very famous picture that's taken with a little waterfall with a buckle of Glenateve in the background and a little tree. And everybody goes there. And I remember Mm -hmm. standing there behind six other people waiting to take my turn (laughs) And it was like being in the in the deli counter at the supermarket, you know. And by the time I got there, I knew the exposure that was going to be used. I knew what lens the other guys had used. I knew the filters that we'd all, you know. I put my tripod down in the same hole and I took the same picture and I left and I looked at the picture and I thought, my God, this is depressing. Who in their right <laughs> mind would want to do this? Well, there's nothing and there's nothing of me in these pictures. And that's when I mm-hmm. suddenly realized that there was literally nothing. I wasn't, I was going through the motions. I was, cu- I was coloring by numbers. Right. So I then thought, well, okay, what is it that's missing? How do you find you, the photographer? And I, I started reading books and going out and, and I, I largely stopped taking pictures. And part of the problem was I'd got a ton of kit and you know, one of the things that got me back to it was simplifying. Mm-hmm. And I started then to just stop and photograph things that pleased me because I didn't have a massive bag of kit. And often we are judging what we're looking at as whether it's good enough to be photographed. But what we don't ask ourselves is, are we good enough photographers? Are we aware enough to make something of the beauty that's presented to us? And all of a sudden I found that I was looking at things in a new way. I wasn't looking at things thinking, is it worth me photographing you? I was thinking, okay, how can I, how can I solve the problem that I am here? The light isn't what is deemed to be great light for photography, but what can I make of it? What is there to photograph? You know, I've come all this way and gradually over a period of years, I started to see more and be more aware and more open to different opportunities and enjoy the experience of just being out with a view to possibly making a photograph, not with the intention of making a photograph. Because I'd lived my life up to this point under massive pressure. Mm -hmm. And if you put lots and lots of pressure on yourself, actually you don't function very well. A little bit of pressure is good. Lots and lots of pressure that keeps building causes you to doubt yourself, causes you to doubt your ability, causes insecurity, generates unhappiness and dissatisfaction. And I thought, I don't want to be unhappy or dissatisfied. I've been there. I, I want to enjoy photography. I've loved photography since I was a kid. And I really want to enjoy it now. So I just started looking at things and thinking, okay, that's caught my eye. Why has that caught my eye? What is it about that that's caught my eye over that big mountain down there with the waterfall and the tree, for the sake of argument, that mm-hmm. everybody else is photographing? And I thought, well, I, I don't know what it is. But that was okay, because it allowed me just to spend time in it with it. And Minor White, the photographer, one of his quotes is roughly, so to speak, and I can't remember it word for word, is, is, is basically, if you, if you spend time with your subject your subject will reveal itself to you. And I had never really stopped and spent much time with, I'd gone to places thinking, right, this is what I'm going to photograph. It's in this magazine. 
They tell you where to stand. They tell you what lens to use. I'm going to do that. And I hadn't stopped and given myself the opportunity to be a photographer. I was, I was just following the lead. That other, and there's nothing wrong with being inspired by people and going to their locations and reshooting their pictures. But there comes a point oh, I, where you want more. And that was the bit I got to. I needed something that satisfied me as a person. And actually the experience of just standing at the side of a road and thinking, wow, that's really beautiful. Now, I'd like to photograph that. What's the best position to photograph it from? And rather than thinking about it in terms of lenses and film simulations and all the rest of it, I would just walk around until things just started to sort of feel right. And I'd photograph it from wherever it felt right. And that sounds really, it sounds a bit weird, but I like to get a gut instinct about something. So mm-hmm. if it starts to feel right, then I tend to just be still. I don't get my camera out until the literally moment before I want to press the button. I'll, um, I'll stand and look and sit and write and think and often sit with my eyes closed just listening to what's going on. And that whole thing of slowing down, it, I couldn't be more diametrically opposed to, to where I used to be. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I'll sit for hours if need be. If I think there's something there, I'll sit. But then if nothing, if nothing materializes photographically, I don't go, oh, that was a terrible day. I just go, do you know what? That was a beautiful day. I loved the experience of being out possibly to make a picture, but not wedded to it. And it's, it's the, the losing the attachment to an end result. You know, we always have to have something tangible at the end of every, in the end of every day. What have you achieved today? Well, I made this many socks or I took this many photographs. I made this many prints, but what about, I lived this many moments. I experienced a beautiful sunrise. It didn't make a photograph, but boy, did I enjoy it. I felt the grass rubbing on my legs and it made my trousers wet. You know, they're the moments that life is made of. They're the things at the end of your life, when your life flashes before you, that you'll remember. Won't be how many pictures you you took. It won't be how many prints you made, how many competitions you won, how big your name was it will be the little bits of your life that come back to you and say do you know what you lived your life you experienced your life and you enjoyed it many of us just exist i existed mm-hmm. at the times i didn't live you know my my day's work would be in the bin 24 hours later and when you think of it like that, that your work is thro- literally thrown in the bin at the end of the day, you wonder why you are sweating blood to produce something that is that disposable. And journalism and photojournalism, they're noble and very valuable professions. But I just got to a point where I just thought, I can't be this, I can't be this throwaway now, I'm not saying that my work now is not throwaway. I mean, I'm sure people have bought them and chuck them in the bin, you know. I'm sure they are. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Yep. It doesn't matter now because the photographs that I make now are not to please anybody else. They're not to win awards or 
gain any kudos or likes on social media. They are purely moments that reflect how I feel in a particular space at a particular time. And I don't believe in bad light. I don't believe in bad weather. There is just light and weather and what is there with you. So I, I work with it in this thing of this is the light that I am given. And if God gives me this light, then that's the best light available at the time I'm here. So that's okay. I can work with that. If that's the best that's got, and those hills and mountains are the best they've got, and let's face it, they've been waiting for the best moment when I'm here for millennia. (laughs) Surely I can raise my game to give them the best that I can in this. And therefore we have the best photograph or the best experience of that moment in time. But that moment is very transient. It's gone. You know, as soon as you press the button, yeah, the moment is frozen in your camera, but the, the moment, the experience have gone. And that's, that's brilliant. I, I love the fact that it's, it's gone and can never be repeated. And even if somebody is standing three inches to the left or right of you, they're going to get a different experience of the moment. But the problem we have as photographers is that we are worried about the judgment of people. Will anybody like my picture? Will I win a competition? What if I don't do very well in the camera club? You know, what if people don't like it? What if, you know, we love this external validation, but actually the external validation counts for nothing if you don't enjoy what you do, if you're not making pictures that, that make your soul sing, that tell your story. And the important thing that we have to all understand is why we photograph. Tell me what attracted you to the black and white, to the long exposure, to the, they're not all low key, but, but the, the, the darker images. How did this speak to the philosophy that you've been talking about, which is, you know, life-changing stuff? So for me, I don't shoot long exposures because I like milky water. I started shooting long exposures because the calm that's, that's shown in them was aspirational for me. I didn't feel calm. I was filled with anxiety and tension and my head was noisy, like listening to loads of different conversations but not being able to hear them. And I was in a constant state of agitation. So I found calm, not only through the process of photographing in a long exposure style, but also in looking at the prints and reflecting on them. And that minimalism came to me through decluttering to getting rid of things in my life that weren't good for me. So the minimalism in my photographs reflects the leaving stuff out that isn't relevant, the leaving stuff out that doesn't, doesn't work for you, doesn't make you happy, doesn't fulfill you. you know, so I'll start with a very busy composition and just go, that doesn't work, that doesn't, I don't need that, I don't need this. Don't. And I've done that a number of times through my life since leaving the Times. I've got rid of a lot of the material stuff that just I didn't need. I didn't find that I needed so much stuff. We have so much stuff. God, I, I see amateurs who've got more stuff in their kit bag than I've ever owned. And <laughs> it, gets in, it gets in the way of seeing the photograph. So I like to just keep everything as simple as possible because it means I don't have as many decisions to make. It means I don't place value on stuff that's irrelevant. I will allow the simplicity of the picture to to sort of speak in its own way. And I don't expect other people to get 
my vision. That'd be a bit arrogant. So I let people have their own relationship with it. The dark stuff comes from the fact I love the quiet of the night. I love how darkness kind of muffles noise and allows the subject just to sort of speak a little bit. You know, at night, and we were talking before we came on air about how you can, you know, you were talking about Rannick Moore and how you can hear the water in the grass and you can hear, you know, you can hear the very ground breathing and moving and the grass is mm-hmm. all, you can almost hear it growing. And I love that. When you, you, when you turn out the lights, one, it hides a lot of stuff that you don't need. You know, you can lose stuff in the shadows, but also there's a quietness and it's almost like the image is whispering to you. So you just pay a bit more attention to it. And people are very afraid of blacks in, in photography. You know, if you, if you block in a black, blimey, people, people spin because the, technically it's incorrect. <laughs> I don't care. You know, I mean, my printer's got, I think I've got 12 inks in my printer, and I swear 11 of them are black. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love black. You know, the, uh, paper's, the, the paper's white, so let's use white on the paper and then black. <laughs> lots and lots of black. <laughs> oh, man. You, you and I are of the same school there. But I, I want to I talk about a couple of your images specifically because we're, ta- we're talking about being still. We're talking about mindfulness. We're talking about calm and quiet. And yet you've got a picture here of a relatively angry sea breaking over what appears to be a seawall. In a book, and we're going to get to the book in a second too, but yeah. in a book called Solace. Um, yes. Give me the story of, of that image, but also why that image, you know, then made it into the collection. Okay, so the the image is uh, from the the Cobb in Lyme Regis, uh, and it's it's a very well photographed location. I mean, it's a beautiful seawall with its lovely snaking line of bricks that I, I can't remember when they've been there for years, hundreds and hundreds of years. And I'd, I'd been down there and I, I, I'd been interested to photograph it. But I have to get a sense of the experience. I walked out onto the cob in, the, in, t- in all the storm that was sort of raging and the spray was around me and, and it was really wild. And it, it just felt like exactly how... I felt inside my head at the time. And I just, I just stood there and I thought, wow, this is so me. You know, the waves were breaking over the wall and, and I just, I at that point was feeling a bit swamped by everything, feeling like, you know, literally like I was sort of drowning, but there was this exhilaration to it, you know, and it's quite, it's quite a dark image. It's a bit foreboding in, in mm-hmm. many ways. That's the frustration and the, and the sort of the hurt that, I'm feeling inside because I was still sort of battling my, you know, my mental health demons, and and it's okay to allow that vulnerability to show through. You know, many of us hide it, but I don't mind putting something out there. And then you know, like you asked me about it, and I'll say, yeah, that's that's me at my most vulnerable. That's a picture of the raging frustration and anxiety and everything that's going on inside me. It's not just a picture of a storm it's a picture that reflects exactly how i was feeling when i was there and for me that's the important thing now other people will look at it and they just go wow that's a stormy picture and that's okay because they don't need to know all the backstory 
you know, or some people will go, oh, that's a bit dark. Can you print it a bit lighter? Well, actually, no, I can't. But I, I don't mind that you have a different relationship with that picture because we all have different relationships with pictures that we come across every day. And some of them are as the artist hopes and others aren't. And that's okay. You know, but for me, that image is, it's, it's quite painful now to look at it. Cause I, but in another way, I look back at that photograph and I can see how far I've come in terms of my recovery. Oh, cool. Tell me about a picture that is its complete opposite. And again, th- these are all on the website, folks. I, I, I hope you're looking at them as, as we're talking. Tell me about the image that you call Sunderland, the one just a, a curving seawall out to a lighthouse. Um, oh, right. Beautiful, beautiful picture. Do you remember taking this one? I do. Um, that was quite a, quite a while ago. I actually, um, I actually took that. It was a bit of a strange day because I was supposed to be reviewing a camera for a magazine, and I'd been, <laughs> I hadn't actually even got it out of its box, and I'd had it for like ten days because I, I don't get excited about kit, and you know, well, not particularly anyway. And I'd had this camera, and I, and, and I had a call from the editor. He said, oh, I need some pictures from you fairly soon. And I was sat out, literally, it was raining in Sunderland, and Roker Pier, which is what that's of. I'd never seen it before, and weirdly hadn't seen any photographs of it. And it happened to be right outside the hotel that I'd stayed in. I hadn't noticed it the night before, and I came out, and I sat down in the rain, and I was thinking, oh, God, he's going to realize that I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, and I, I always suffer from massive imposter syndrome. And I thought, why on earth have they given somebody so untechnical a camera to review when I have no idea what I'm doing? Uh-huh. And I, I literally sort of looked at the, the pier and I thought, wow, that is just beautiful. So beautiful. And it was quite a choppy, choppy scene. And I, I just thought, it's so, so simple. You do know what you're doing. You are grounded enough to tell it in your own way. And I just thought, well, there's the picture. That'll do. So I, I literally put my tripod up where I was sitting and the photograph <laughs> appeared. <laughs> and and it, it sort of, it, it just hit me that, you know, there's this lovely, elegant, curving pier in this sea of, of calmness. Mm-hmm. And... I'd been really anxious beforehand, but just by sort of sitting down going, do you know, actually, Paul, you can do this. You've got this. It may not be the most technical review of the camera, but it'll be a review from a user's point of view. Does the camera work? Yes, it does. Are the buttons in good places? Yes or no. And, and, and I went at it in that way. And, and that's the way I, I had to be authentic to myself. And that just reminded me this is the way I work. So be authentic to that. And then you can be authentic in what you need to write down. And I, I just love how that arm sweeps out to the almost sweeping back out of the frame. And there's a lot of, a lot of uh, people call it negative space, but I like to think of it as positive space because it lets you think. <laughs> yep. if, if pictures can be elegant, th- th- this one is, it's, it's, it's certainly one of my favorites. We were talking before, you know, you and I've been to a, a number of the same places up in Scotland that, that are be- I mean, photographers' dreams. Yes. Um, but I, and I'm looking at, at your workshops here, and your workshops are not like a lot of people's. You, you don't claim to be increasing people's technical knowledge of how to be a landscape photographer. You're using photography to get at something else. So 
last question. Talk to me about your workshops. You know, tell me about sharing this 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 journey that you've been on with others and how that's being received. Okay, it's a, an interesting thing because most people want to know how to photograph what they see. So there is a technical element to photography, but with the technology in cameras these days, you don't need to understand all of that because you can see it you know if you've got a mirrorless camera you can see the image on the screen before you press the button so you know instinctively whether it reflects what you feel so the workshops that i do with still i mean we call them retreats because they're not so much about the locations that we go to they're about the experience of being in a location so there you know if i go and do a, a workshop it generally used to be sort of three or four locations in the morning, three or four in the afternoon, lots of talk about, you know, the filters and F numbers and shutter speeds and all that. But for me, the important bit is, what do you as an individual see? Because it's very easy to go on a workshop and everybody stands in a line with their tripod. And, and we do that for insecurity and warmth. And it also makes the workshop leader's job a lot easier because you don't have to walk so far. But what do you as an individual get from this landscape, what do you see? What do you feel? What do you smell? What can you taste on the air? What can you hear? What's going on? So I, I get people to write down what, they, what they're experiencing. And we do meditation practices. So we get people to connect with their, their, their breathing so that they take time before they even get their kit out to, to ground themselves, to center themselves in a location. And it might be that there's something very obvious that wants photographing, you know, but that might be something that's going to move quickly and you need to react fairly quickly. But on the whole, that little bit of breathing time gives you a chance to look around the location. I say, if you just, you know, put your bag down, the pressure of your bag on your shoulder adds pressure to you, which narrows down the way you see, narrows down your open acceptance of what's there. And, you know, my experience of a lot of workshops is with clients, you, they, they will say, oh, there's nothing here to photograph. And that's because they're not giving themselves a chance. So I talk through a location with people. I say, okay, well, there's, you know, there's options over here and there's options here, which is probably what a lot of people do. And then I'll say, well, actually, you could just sit and enjoy it and not take any photographs. You don't have to photograph. And they go, what, we don't need to? No, you don't have to take a photograph. Just sit and have a glass of water or a cup of tea or just enjoy it. Just sit. Leave your camera bag. Just sit. I'll look after your bag. Just maybe go for a walk. And then they come back and they say, I found, is it okay if I go and photograph something? And of course it is. Yes. Because they'll have, they'll have taken the pressure off themselves. And we're, we're under such pressure. And if you're in a workshop group, often there's, there's little, you know, people introduce themselves by, you know, I... I'm Mr. Smith and I've done this and I've gone there and I've won this award or whatever. There's a sort of one-upmanship, a sort of competition, an ego side to photography. But actually, most photographers I find are quite insecure and they have a lot of doubts about their ability and a lot of doubts about whether they see properly or see well. So I like to just say, right, okay, this is where we are, let's do this. But I'll often do little icebreakers you know, where I say to people, okay, for the next half an hour, I want you to just photograph the color red. And I go, but yeah. we're in the middle of Rannoch Moor. I say, okay, <laughs> find some red. And, Good luck with that sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, uh, but what happens is 
they become really tuned into variations of tone of the color red. Mm -hmm. And then people come back and they go, well, I photographed these grasses because although mostly green, there were a couple of red ones in there. You go, well, yes, there are. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And they start to see in a new way. And I, I do it. I do it quite a lot. I mean, I do one with texture where before you photograph something, you close your eyes and you feel what you're going to photograph and touch it. What does it feel like as opposed to what it looks like? Because we engage our visual senses, photographers, but we don't always get engaged any other senses. But what does it feel like? Does it feel like how you're going to photograph it? And if not, how can you make it look like it feels? And then you're, you're, you're making people think. And I, I mean, over the last year of the sort of COVID thing, I've been running online workshops where the blessing of those has been that you're not all in one location. So I will give a brief of texture for the sake of argument and have eight people in different parts of the world all photographing texture. And then they all come back a week or so later and we share the pictures in the slideshow and the beauty in the uniqueness of the way these people see is incredible. And I have yet to see one photographer who has come back and oh, I couldn't do it. They've all gone and done these mad assignments. I set one today for a group and the title, the assignment is called Invisible. Photograph something that you use every day that you don't pay attention to. So like your glasses or your coffee cup or your watch. And then look at it and pay attention to the, the beauty, the shape, the design. You know, somebody labored over that design. And we don't pay any attention to it. Develop an awareness for th the simple things in your life. And then actually the bigger things come much easier. You see them much more readily. Paul, you, you are an eloquent man. And, and you this is important stuff. I hope people are paying attention here. This, this is really, really wonderful. Unfortunately, though, we are running out of time here. Oh, no, um, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's, <laughs> no, not, not at all. Paul, thank you very much. This has been extraordinary. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, Scott. I really appreciate it. Frames, because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.